if I just get the perfect velvet sofa, if I just get the perfect terrace, if I just get the perfect bedroom with the perfect bed and the pillows, I will sleep well at night and I will feel okay. I will feel complete. Like when the home is complete, I will feel complete. I will feel like I made it. And I was just self-deceiving. And I started seeing that I just had to give it away and figure out what is it that I am resisting? What is it that is calling me on a deeper level? Because this apartment was so full of all the most beautiful treasures, but I was completely empty. You're burnt out or well on your way there. You're in a constant state of efforting, hustling, and wanting. And frankly, it's exhausting. I'm Dr. Mandy Leto, a self-described recovering overachiever, and I get it. These are the conversations to help you navigate your own self-discovery. Here, you are brave, imperfect, and whole just as you are. Because enough isn't somewhere you get to, a finish line, a title, a state of grace. It's something you choose. Nobody is coming to save you. The beautiful thing is, you get to save yourself, and I'm walking this journey with you. It's time to be more while doing less. Welcome to Enough. Before we begin this conversation, this is a heads up that there are some references to childhood trauma in this episode, in case that's a trigger for you. Today's guest is David Vox, a transformational coach who started his career as a serial entrepreneur with expertise in marketing and business development. David has received many media awards and accolades, including being featured by Forbes as one of the air quotes, entrepreneurs rocking the world. He was also featured on Amy Porterfield's podcast, Online Marketing Made Easy. But behind all of these public successes was a self-proclaimed overachiever pushing against chaos and pain with all his might. Here's why. David grew up in a small village in Norway and his mother had been sent away to prison for murder. The young David was raised by foster parents in two different families where he suffered abuse and neglect. And in one of those families, the young David spent most of his time around the family's goats, saying they were his salvation. They were kind to him. They understood him. David's next home was an orphanage where he left behind the goat behaviors he'd picked up. He discovered he was quite good at school and threw himself into it. David was then taken in by a third foster family, a loving one this time. And as a teen, that turbulent period for so many of us when it comes to our identities, his overachiever kicked in. He came out as gay. He was figuring out who he was. His grades were stellar. And as he grew into a man, David created a life that looked aspirational from the outside with beautiful things, a gorgeous home, a toned body. He won more titles, Mr. Gay Norway, and went on to win Mr. Gay Europe. His career was also taking off. But inside, he felt empty. He thought he was so strong because he was holding in all of these feelings and pushing down trauma and still functioned in a way that looked fantastic, aspirational even, to everyone else. This is a conversation about how David learned how to change his relationship with overachieving and embraced forgiveness 
and ultimately surrender. Grab your cuppa. I'll be right back with David. You don't want to miss this one. David Vox, I am so delighted to have you on the show. Thank you so much for playing with us today. Thank you for having me, Mandy. Let's jump into a scene that you and I have talked about before where you as a recovering overachiever had created this beautiful home that looked beautiful, cozy. I mean, it was probably a a design lover's dream. You had created this home that looked perfect from the outside, and yet you felt really empty. I remember when you said you felt homeless in your own home, in this, this kind of symbolic external creation that you had created, hoping that it was going to fill a void inside of you. Tell us about that home and what kind of journey it kicked off for you. So for me, creating the perfect home, it was such an adventure because I thought that when I am happy with my home, I will also feel complete with myself. That when I (laughs) get the perfect sofa and the perfect bedroom and the perfect terrace, that I decorated with vintage mirrors on all the walls and over a hundred beautiful flowers that just grew and blossomed in every shape and every color. And sitting there on the terrace surrounded with this magnolia tree that was blossoming, I just felt that when I have it all together, then I will feel home and I will feel ready to open up to maybe invite a date or maybe get more friends to come and visit me and use less time on working and just sitting there alone and more time opening up to life and opening up the door to life. Sadly, the last month in the apartment, the only guests that I had were two people who broke into the apartment and got chased out by my dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite what you had in mind. (laughs) No. And uh, this beautiful apartment was in the middle of Barcelona. And it was in this tiny little street and it was absolutely adorable. And it was everything that I ever dreamed of. It was spacious and huge and rare. And when I finished everything to the extreme detail, that every decoration, that every painting, that every candle and flower and bouquet, and I even had my own florist that made the most beautiful bouquets every week. And I was so enjoying the idea that someone would come and enjoy it and see how beautiful my home was. But I never invited anyone. And I wondered why. Why do I feel homeless in my own home? And I decided to start decluttering some of the things that I was really holding on to. And I had been a little bit addicted of buying really expensive stuff, designer stuff and brand stuff. So one of the detoxes that I did, (laughs) the weight losses for my own ego, was to give all of these expensive brand stuff away. And I thought that would sort of liberate me a little bit and make me more connected to my true self. So some of that stuff, I literally just went down the street in my backyard and put some of these beautiful designer scarves and sweaters and shoes just outside the garbage. And then I just waited there to see who is this lucky person who's going to find this golden treasure that I left for them. And there was this beautiful homeless man who walked over to the garbage. And I just, I remember my heart was smiling, thinking, good for you. What a gift. And he lifted up this big Gucci scarf and he looked at it 
and then he just threw it behind him as if it had no value to him. Didn't have any value. And it just fell into the mud of the dirty street of Barcelona. And I, I could hear my ego screaming, no, <laughs> no. So you're watching from the terrace thinking that you're also doing a great thing. And you know, meanwhile, you're trying to purge all of this ego stuff. And it's just, I love this scene. <laughs> complete, complete ego death for a moment there. And it just made me see that I was feeling homeless in my own home. And now without all of these labels and brands and achievements that I tried to stick to my body, I was feeling even more homeless because the guy in the street didn't even care about it. And I was sitting in this apartment and I was going into what I would say is a transformational process. And it was deeper than depression. It was something of a very deep resistance that I didn't really know what, what it was. But I also felt that this castle that I created was a little bit like a glass castle. I, I was stuck. And I had tried now for four years thinking, if I just get the perfect velvet sofa, if I just get the perfect terrace, if I just get the perfect bedroom with the perfect bed and the pillows, I will sleep well at night and I will feel okay. I will feel complete. Like when the home is complete, I will feel complete. I will feel like I made it. And I was just self-deceiving. And I started seeing that I just had to give it away and figure out what is it that I am resisting? What is it that is calling me on a deeper level? Because this apartment was so full of all the most beautiful treasures, but I was completely empty. And I couldn't keep on living like that. So you were already well into self-development at this stage. This was not the beginning of your journey. And I know when we've spoken before, you've talked about the importance that ayahuasca has had for you in your self-development. Before you tell us a little bit more about what ayahuasca, and you refer to it as she, what she, what she asked me to do, can you just tell listeners who aren't familiar with ayahuasca what it is? And this was clearly part of your journey for a couple of years, if I'm not mistaken, but this was mm -hmm. the final frontier that she was asking you to do this thing. So tell us first what it is and then what was it that she was asking you to do? Yes. So the first time I had met ayahuasca was four years before this episode, this process. And I came to ayahuasca not knowing how to really fully heal myself because I was a high achiever. I had been successful. I had a million dollar investment. I've been featured in Forbes and yada, yada, yada. But I just felt so stressed and anxious on the inside. And I knew it was a trauma, but I also felt I should be over it because I was almost, you know, I was 30 years old. It was time to put it behind. And ayahuasca is this tea from Latin America that a lot of different native tribes have used for thousands of years of healing to connect to their shadow side. So we call her her, we call her grandmother because she's a very old spirit. So if you don't believe in spirit, it's kind of a shock drinking ayahuasca because she's very much alive. And the first time I drank ayahuasca and she came and presented herself to me, I was very in shock because I never seen a spirit before. And she just came to me and said, are you ready to let go now? I didn't know at that moment what that meant. But I decided to trust her and she became the teacher on this very deep journey of letting go and transforming all of this trauma, all of the parts of myself that I had 
hidden away or rejected all of the fragmented part of me that I didn't want to be associated with, parts of my fragmented self. And she gave me always very clear homework to do. And if I didn't do it, she would just say it again and again and again until I decided to do it. And I met that wall <laughs> when I was in my apartment and made it perfect because Ayahuasca asked me many times, you met the fear on the inside, now go and meet it on the outside. Go home to Norway to where you come from and meet your fear. Meet those people that hurt you when you were a child. You're not a child anymore. And any secret and any fear that you're still hiding inside of you that is so heavy, that is taking your life force, your life energy, put it out in the light and let it be transformed. And over the four years working with Ayahuasca, the only thing I wouldn't do would actually be doing what you actually asked me to do because that was the integration work that was actually putting that courage into reality. It was so much easier just sitting there crying on a pillow or throwing up. And I sort of wanted the deep, I wanted the quick fix. I wanted the thing that didn't mean that I had to go and apologize or I have, didn't have to go and meet someone that I was scared of meeting because I had shame or guilt. But in my process, there wasn't any other way eventually because there are so, there are, there are just, there is just a limit on how many designer pillows you can buy before you understand that it's madness. And when I then decided to give it all away and go home to Norway in the winter, I felt really defeated. I felt completely defeated. I'm going to go home to this little village and sit there and not know what to do with my life. People think I'm this successful person. And I'm going to walk over, walk over the road from the house to that one little store in the village and like ah, not have direction. And one of the things I was going to ask me to do was not only go home, but also to take a year off. So this was my year off, my soul sabbatical, because she wanted me to find out who, who are you without your achievement? Who are you without your to-do list? I found out very quickly that without my to-do list, I'm an anxious wreck. <laughs> I need I need my to-do list. And also without your Gucci and your antique Moroccan mirrors and your magnolia. And so you did a massive shedding of all the things that you thought you were. And now you're in this village in the winter, feeling like a wreck because you don't know where to guide your doing energy. Mm. And you've been told by ayahuasca to come and confront your fear. Yes. And some of those fears, they were really, really small, but they had grown so big and heavy over 20, 30 years. So some of them were apologizing for things that had been done in childhood that was not a big deal, but over time that had just grown really big and hairy. <laughs> They've been like hidden under the bed and been shaking the bed in your dreams every night because they were still very active. They were still sort of like an emotional hemorrhoid of an energy that was like moving around the system. Okay, can we just stop right there and just emotional hemorrhoid? I mean, <laughs> you heard it here, folks, emotional hemorrhoid. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but it feels like that when emotions get completely stuck in the system, they can truly hemorrhoid your inner system. And... It was just so sad because I was trying so hard to sort of hack the universe. You know, I was this high achiever and I could find a strategy to sort of hack my way into the perfect equation of life and, you know, scrub the floor for Jesus and then, you know, win the main prize and make sure that I get on top and can control the universe. So I don't have to experience any uncomfort. And to just sit there without any like gold carrot thing and 
be in this cabin by myself in winter, in the dark. It literally became like the, the dark night of my soul. But luckily, I was close to a support system. So I had a family close by, my foster family, which was my third family, my soul family. A lot of people don't understand that because people think blood is thicker than water. But for me, the soul is thicker than blood. So my soul family, they were there to support me. So I didn't go through the process alone. And what I decided to do when I was sitting there was to go and confront the fear that had been running around, chasing me in my dreams since childhood. There was a family. It was my first foster family that had severely abused me as a child. And the father in that family even attempted to kill me when I was just five years old. And even though now I was this big guy, there was a part of me that was completely terrified of this family because the abuse and uh, the, the sadism, the, the evilness in the type of their abuse made me terrified maybe completely terrified. I'm, I'm still pretty terrified of people that can do evil stuff towards other people. But these people were absolutely horror story for me. And when I was sitting there in this cabin, I found out that my, my stepdad who tried to kill me was still alive and he was on Facebook. I could poke him. And that truly poked the deepest part of my own shadow self because I have always thought that this man was dead. I don't know why. I think my sort of brain just like, we need to bury you because otherwise I can't move forward with my life. And my foster mom, who was together with him when I grew up as a child and experienced all of this abuse, she did die. And I had this insane process when she went through the end of her life because she actually had the audacity to ask me to come to the hospital. So she had severely, severely, severely abused me for three years to the point that I lived more or less more with the goats than with the humans and had goat behavior for, for a long time after I was kidnapped and take, taken out of this home and was completely terrified of this woman. But when she was dying, she uh, made a request to her family, can someone connect with me and ask if I can come because she wanted to talk to me. And I felt that this was my moment for revenge. I was 21 years old when I literally ran down and I haven't been running since the 80s. So I was motivated to run down to the florist shop and I bought the biggest bouquet because, you know, when you have hate, there is no budget. And, <laughs> and I wrote her a letter and I put it in a golden envelope. So still on this hate letter, you can see that that was a little bit gay. I wrote in this letter, I hope you burn in hell. Merry Christmas. And I sent it off to the hospital. And I was so proud of myself. I felt like finally I stood up to the bad, wicked witch. And I went home to my apartment. And I called my grandmother, who I love dearly, my biological grandmother. And I said to her, I finally told her. I finally had a little part of my revenge. And she said, what did you do, David? I said, Grandma, I... I wrote to her, I hope you burn in hell, Merry Christmas. And it became very quiet at the under end of the line. And my grandmother responded, David, hate is not for people like us. And it felt like something just broke inside my heart. I actually fell on my knees and started crying because I knew it was true. 
but I also felt so entitled to that anger and that pain that something with her and everything that she had lived through made me so deeply honor and respect that, that I literally ran even faster down to the florist again to catch that bouquet and that golden envelope. And I never sent her that hate message. So the process around this was really intense. And then coming home to the village, being many years later in my 30s, knowing that this stepdad is alive, who actually tried to kill me while shoving me from a cliff into the ocean, I just felt so much rage inside of me because I was still also that boy that was five years old. I was looking out towards the ocean and then feeling those hands on my shoulders pushing me outside the cliff, rolling uncontrollably into the ocean and just by a miracle being saved. And I went up to my family and I told them everything that I was going to do to him. I was going to go to that village he lived in. I'm going to put up posters on every house Oh no, a thousand houses, if there's a thousand houses there, and tell everyone what he's done and tell everyone to keep their kids away from him and make sure that everyone knows who he is. He is. I am going to shame him until the last days of his life. And I remember my sister's husband, he looked at me and he said, David, you're that guy who always come home and talk about transformation and healing. And this doesn't sound like you anymore. And I was so shocked when I went back into my cabin, full of rage and anger, trying to sort of figure out what to do with this person. And because when I looked in the mirror, I was actually feeling that I looked into my stepdad's eyes. The anger that he had sent into me when I was a child was the anger that I felt I was projecting outwards now. And I was just thinking, holy shit, when is this going to stop? But I wasn't over yet. I wanted so desperately to confront every part of this. So I also had contacted this man's daughters. And they both were visiting several times when I was a child being abused. So I felt in my heart that they probably will protect, of course, their dad and be loyal to him. But I wanted to try anyway. And to my big surprise, they really wanted to hear my story. And I think I never felt more small when I got into the car in Norway, <laughs> this dark landscape, driving up the fjords, going to Bergen to visit these two women. One of them in this family even said that she had been looking for me for 20 years. She didn't know what happened to me. She thought maybe they killed me and dug me into the ground or you know, maybe I was a drug addict or who knew what happened to me. So seeing that I'm okay, was a big shock for her, but it was also a big shock for me to seeing that they were willing to actually hear my story. And coming into that room, seeing them and centering myself enough to be able to open up my heart and also really hug them because they were really courageous daring to meet with me. It became such a healing meeting. I don't expect anyone to go to the past to anyone who have hurt you and expect to be healed. But for me, it was so important for me to share my story because as a child, I didn't have a voice. I had more of a goat behavior. It wasn't easy for me to express things. And I needed to come as an adult papa bear and say, this is what happened to me. And I need some validation because no one ever validated what I experienced. So a part of me still thinks I'm insane because how can people be so cruel? It doesn't make any sense. 
So when I met with them, I started with the whole house just to make sure that all the details were correct. And I was so relieved when it was because it wasn't just a fantasy of a child that built a house and all these funny little details. There was my little room with my little blue bed and there was my teddy bear, a monkey, and my dinosaur. There was the little toilet with the green toilet that I would drink from because I didn't get water. So that was my source of water. And there was the TV where they would always show me these violent horror movies and the kitchen. But most importantly, there was the farm where there were 40 goats that became my big, happy, loving family. And I was so shocked that they could validate almost everything that I had experienced because some of those experiences they also had. And they said, we felt it was so absurd and so sick that we never shared it with anyone. So thank you for validating our reality as well. And this was just completely broke my heart. But so we were been sitting there on each end of the table, literally, with our experiences doubting ourselves and our own pain and letting that pain literally run around in our body for so long. And it was so important to me to meet them because I said to them, my reason for meeting you is that I just deeply want us to let this stop with us. Let's not take this pain because we're all entitled to it, to be mad at the world for the rest of our life, but let's just take this pain and work through it and heal it and go to therapy and not give this to our kids, not give this to our partners. That's just this energy needs to stop with us because this is so toxic and it's just, it spreads in our words, in our actions. It just spreads. And that day for me became one of the best days of my life. So I think my sister came to assist me to hold space. I asked her, you have to be a facilitator for me today because I won't be able to be the facilitator. And these two wonderful, courageous women, when they validated my story and they listened to my story and witnessed me without judgment, it felt like that entire story. It's just like the, the cross that I was carrying. <laughs> I felt like I had outscrubbed the floor. I was done. And I got in the car and I was so happy and excited. I was like, I'm never writing a book. I'm like, done with the story. <laughs> so done. And I came home and I just felt so relieved. And I said to these two women, because they, they said to me, what do you want us to say to him? Because we're going to talk to him and tell him that he doesn't have daughters anymore. And I said to them, tell him that I have no anger. Tell him that I have no hate. Tell him that I'm, that I'm a good man. And I quickly just want to say why I said that. Because... Many years before, when I, when I saw that my foster mom, who was so evil, was alive, I told my foster dad in my village, I told him that that evil stepmom, the one who was so abusive, she's alive. What am I going to tell her if I meet her? Should I spit her in the face? Should I slap her? Should I throw acid in her face so she will go blind? Like, tell me, what am I going to do? And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, David, tell her what an amazing man you are. And I just looked at him as if he was completely retarded. Like, you don't get my pain. But now, all of these years later, that's one of the most beautiful seeds someone has ever planted in me. Because I actually could come back over 10 years later and say that. But to this step that. 
because I actually feel that if I came there with the hate and the rage and all of this, he would have won. And me sitting there, not having this like hate letter in a golden envelope to send him, that was me winning. I found out who I were without this pain. I found out who I were without this resentment, without this anger. And that part of me, I'm happy to share. That's my love virus to share with the world. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. There's, thank you, David, for sharing all of that. I forgot that I'm supposed to be hosting the podcast. I got so drawn into your story. And so let's pause here just for a moment. What I'm hearing you say is that on this journey, coming back to yourself, coming back to the beginning, And reclaiming all of those fragmented self, the scared child, the the anger that was bubbling like lava inside of you, all of those selves that the beautiful things and that the achievement can't tamp down, at least not forever. So we can create this, this, some of what you're saying resonates with me as well. I think I'm really curious how so many recovering perfectionists and recovering overachievers and people who identify as I have to keep doing all the time. I often think that there's something about getting curious of who we are beyond our doing who we are beyond our to-do lists because perfectionism and overachieving and you know being this superhero it's one of the only addictions that we're praised for you know if somebody's into gambling or has a sex addiction or they're they're shopping or you know cocaine or nobody's praised for those things but to be an overachiever and you know to to make this life that looks great from the outside It's often something that we're revered for and for you to go in that process of shedding. And I'm not saying to anyone listening, you know, give away all your things and go and live in a cabin in Norway and meet your real self. I don't mean that. This is just one human sharing how he shed all of those things that he thought he was. And by coming back to himself and meeting his fear, he realized that there's something there beyond what you do, what you look like, you know, what, what your long list of achievements is. And when you left that meeting and got back in your car that day and you realized, I'm a good man, I'm love, I'm forgiveness. I think we all know that. And that was one of the seeds that made me able to hold space in, in that meeting the way that I did, because I know that, okay, maybe not now I will be able to hug the guy to try to kill a child, but I know that a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, whatever it is that my journey is, eventually I will be the person who stands at that gate, waits for him and gives him the biggest hug because I know how it feels like to be brutally lost. And sitting there and feeling that I have returned to my home it doesn't have a velvet sofa. It doesn't have all of the antique mirrors, but it does have a reflection of me that is without all of the smug of the trauma and the anger and the identity and the gay and the this and the that and the success. And that home that I found was so much more yummy 
and peaceful. It was like a big spiritual cookie that just, you know, you just, you don't get fat. You just, it's just delicious all the time. Full, Full of chocolate chips. Mm, kind of just straight from the oven. Yes, yes. And it was this authentic vibe that, you know, we all have it when we're children. We're all open. We are in this like perfect balance between masculine and feminine. We don't even think about things. We're not in a character. We're not in this fragmented self yet. To find that radio channel of your unique authenticity again, that being authenticity where you don't get tired, you just receive yourself on a deeper level. I felt it turned me from high achiever to deep receiver. It just went so deep. And when I got there and all of that other stuff on the surface, that didn't become important anymore. Before all my focus is like when you are have pain in a tooth and all your focus goes like, oh, thinking about that at a dentist. The same thing with all the pain that we walk around and carry. Most of our attention will go there to release that, to transform that, to shed that. It is an unbelievable feeling. It doesn't mean that, yay, it's fun with trauma. No, <laughs> nobody deserves trauma. I am not happy to experience any trauma. But the journey that I created to heal my trauma, that path, that purpose, that prosperity I created, that I'm grateful for, but I wish I didn't have to do it. <laughs> but I also feel if you have experienced the deepest level of suffering and pain that comes with being human for many of us, you already graduated from that pain university. You don't have to do that anymore. If you take that power and use that into healing and shedding and releasing and being witnessed and heard, wow, that is all of that power that you've been holding and carrying a mountain on your back that gets turned into creating the most amazing, beautiful life. But it's in the inside. That, that to-do list on the inside is sort of like a spiritual inbox. Those emails never get deleted. Your transformational process, you can't detour it. You will eventually have to go down and meet it. And that is the process. It's not something you just do over a weekend in Norway or you know, in a coaching session. No, no, no. And I'm wondering if while, while we still have some time together, if, if we imagine that those listening, those people will probably be on some kind of a journey of self-discovery and they will resonate with what you're saying about this tension of creating this beautiful life on the inside because this is the way that we think it will seep inside and fix our innards somehow. That if we have this life that looks great on the outside, that it will, you know, by osmosis, sort us out on the inside. So this person may not be on a development of mm. self-discovery yet, but they just know that in spite of trying to do everything right on the outside, they still feel empty on the inside. What would you say to somebody who's in that situation? I have one question, which is one integration exercise that anyone on any part of their journey can do. And after really thinking about it for the last few weeks and really reflecting over my entire life, I feel it might be the most liberating and powerful transformational technique in the entire world. No pressure. But I have to tell a very short story for that seed to have any soil to be planted in. Can I have a very, very short okay, story? Go for it. 
Of course. So of course. when I grew up in my third family, the foster family, my dad had a brother, our uncle, who had a learning disability. So he was like this big papa bear, but he was like a little child inside, always happy, always smiling and always hugging. And he loved this TV show. So every single day for every week that I grew up that he would come visit, he would see the same TV show, never anything else. So when I came home to the, come, came home to the house, you would hear the melody from this TV show playing. And he would be smiling and laughing and talking about his bicycle. That was his greatest love in his life. He covered it up with more colors and bells and whistles and anything else. And unfortunately, he died young. And in the funeral, I was so shocked. As a teenager, I sat there and I was wondering, why is the church overcrowded? My uncle had a learning disability. He was a great guy, but he didn't have any special achievements. He didn't go to war. He didn't, you know, become a millionaire. He didn't do anything extraordinary. Why are there so many people here? Why are people standing? And then one person after the other came in front of the coffin and they said, you were that one guy that always gave me a hug. And when they lifted up that coffin and the pi piano started playing, and I saw that coffin leaving the church, something inside of me completely transformed. And it was how I envisioned myself dying or visiting my own funeral. I was thinking, if I'm lying on my deathbed and I ask myself, have I been a huggable person? A huggable brother, a huggable friend, a huggable boss, a huggable whatever role that I'm going to put on me. Will the answer be yes? And it's such an easy question to ask. If that is a North Star, at least it is for me to have been a huggable person, to have been open enough to be able to receive a hug and give a hug. Perfect balancing masculine and feminine right there. Integration exercise for everyone, no matter what you're doing. Because if the answer is no, or if I'm in a situation right now, right now, do I feel huggable? I feel super huggable right now. I feel you're super huggable right now. But if the answer is no, it's my duty to ask myself, where does that voice come from? If I don't feel worthy, if I feel too busy, if I say to myself, I'm not a huggy person, or if I'm in a conflict or in a meeting, am I huggable? It will give you an instant visceral response. Am I huggable? Because if we have all of these things in our life yeah. on our to-do list, and it doesn't lead to a hug of us being able to receive or give a hug, then what is that to-do list there for? If we're on this mountaintop of high achievement, but we're so far up, people can't reach us for a hug, we need to get the fuck down from the mountaintop. And I have been on so many mountaintops not remembering who I am, which means I'm lost. So I had to walk all the way back to where I came from. And what I found out with being a huggable person, like I'm a professional hugger now, is that when I take a moment when I'm in conflict or when I am feeling fragmented and I ask myself, am I huggable? And there is a voice that says, no, you're not worthy. Or no, nobody should hug you. Or no, you don't have time for that. 
And I let that part of my fragmented self, that inner bully, the inner critic, that judgment, let it be hugged. Something happens to me. And I feel that simple integration exercise has been more powerful than anything else. And if you think, you know, at the end of your life, you will say no to the question if you were huggable, a huggable mom, a huggable sister, a huggable friend, then please hug yourself and those you love as if your life depends on it, because it really does. And if we just ask ourselves that one question, I promise you there will be so many diamonds thrown up on your path. And right now, because of COVID, we have like a million gazillion hugs available on the bank balance that are like waiting for us. <laughs> Absolutely. David, this has been such a powerful journey. And everybody who's on the Enough podcast, I asked them to lay a brick on this journey to enough, because really it's not a linear journey. There's ups and downs. And what it is, is we're coming back to ourselves. If it could be a piece of advice, it could be a single word. What would be the brick that you would lay for listeners on the journey to enough? Hug every single part of you that says that you're not enough and just see what happens. When I imagine doing that, I can imagine that there's some parts of me that stand there stiff as a poker, you know, that uh, maybe they've never been hugged. Maybe they don't know what it means to be hugged or how beautiful it is not to have to do all of it alone and to be armored. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, maybe we're high achievers or our to-do list is actually just our fragmented self presenting yourself as an activity <laughs> to be noticed. And I just find it so interesting because if we take the time to go deeper and to hug all of those parts of ourselves, I just feel we're going to have the nicest it also means ever. It also means that this whole thorny, messy, non-linear business of forgiveness we can also forgive ourselves, right? We can forgive ourselves and we can ground ourselves in a center that is not based on trauma and anger and hatred and all of those unstable energies. And I'm not saying that's easy work, that's lifelong work. But this is one of the most powerful things I'm taking away from your share today is learning to ground ourselves and not having to empty and deplete ourselves and overfunction, thinking that we can do ourselves in, do ourselves into a life that feels good. It's deep work. And there's being work, not just doing work. Mm. There's so much to talk about the zone of genius, but the zone of being is without a doubt that only zone that will take you all the way home. Mm. And I think that in particular, for those of you who identify as overachievers or perfectionists, I think this episode is definitely worth another listen to absorb on a cellular level. David, where can people hang out with you and experience more of the goodness that you've shared with us today? I think on Instagram is the easiest place to just hang out. I don't have matcha every Monday, but I do share from time to time more videos on my journey. I love to just share what is authentically happening. And yes, just being a normal human being on my path. <laughs> Excellent. So all of that will be in the show notes. 
David Vox, thank you so much for sharing your heart, for letting us walk this path on the journey to enough. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, man. This was amazing. I have two requests of you. Who do you know who would benefit from hearing the message that David Vox shared with us today? Please share that episode with them. And my second request is, as a brand new podcast, your reviews on iTunes really, really help a new podcast get legs. So even if you're the kind of person who's never left a review, this is an invitation with my hand on my heart saying, I would love it if you would head on over and give the podcast a rating so that more people can experience it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, a preview of coming attractions, we have declutter coach Sarah Briggs on the next episode, who's talking to us about the complicated relationship between feelings of not good enoughness and stuff. So stuff and enough. Here's a preview of what's coming in the next episode. Or if you bought something and you never used it once, I'm thinking like a kitchen gadget or something, you learned a little bit about yourself. You learned that oh, I'm not the kind of person who's going to make pasta from scratch. And that's okay. (laughs) Yeah, nod to bread makers gathering dust all (laughs) over the world. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so grateful that you're here. I hope you love this new creation, Enough the Podcast. This is Mandy Leto signing out. Until next time.